Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, where we try to go over high-yield orthopedic topics. This podcast was started by myself, and I am Dr. Cole, and Dr. Fitz. We started this, and we wanted to, again, go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today, we have a super high-yield orthopedic surgery topic. We're going to be talking about some intertrochanteric femur fractures. Now, before we get into this episode, please subscribe if you have not. And this episode is actually a good episode to check out our YouTube channel because we have visuals with x-rays. And if you want to see what we're talking about on different um, classifications, you can do that. And we actually, at the end of this, go over some cases that Dr. Sanders was so kind enough to share. So if you want to take a look at some of those cases and some of the, the operative things and things that we point out on the x-rays, feel free to do that. That's going to be at Nailed It Ortho on YouTube. If you want to see just clips of our podcast, it's going to be Nailed It Clips. I know, simple, right? So again, today we have Dr. Drew Sanders coming on to talk about intertrochanteric femur fractures, a high yield topic. A little bit more about Dr. Sanders. He did his surgery, his orthopedic surgery residency at UT Southwestern, and he completed his trauma fellowship training at the Florida Orthopedic Institute and the University Hospital of Norfolk and Norwich in the UK. Kind of cool, right? That's I mean, that's pretty cool. And he also currently serves as the Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program Director for UT Southwestern Medical Center. So again, we hope you all enjoy this episode. Please go and leave us a review and rate us in iTunes. It takes literally three seconds to do. You could do it and be back by the time this podcast really starts. Again, thank you all and enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Sanders, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Thank you for coming on and I am uh, looking forward to this talk. So welcome to the podcast. Yep. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit off air of some some potentially topics uh, that we can get into before we actually get into our talk on on hip fractures today. Um, but we typically start off our podcast a couple of questions, just kind of get to know you, um, and then we get into the talk. So the first question I have, general question, is what made you choose trauma out of all the different specialties? Is there anything that 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 call your name, or what made you kind of go about that route? Yeah, I think uh, I, I enjoyed a lot of things in residency. Um, so it's hard for me to decide, but the combination of enjoying a little bit of variety day to day. And then also I was really fortunate to be surrounded by strong mentors who are also in trauma. So I think that was probably the thing that pushed me into it. Uh, maybe more than anything else was being, being mentored. Well, yeah, I think that has a, a plays a big part in, in choosing what you want to go into, um, as I've kind of discovered from talking to a, a lot of different people of what made them choose their, their specialty. Um, another question I have is sometimes we have a, uh, we have a lot of residents that listen in some med students, uh, some attendings as well, but what brought you towards academics? We know you're now, you know, your program director where you're at. So what kind of made you go about that route and how, how, how is the overall experience of being a program director? How is that? Yeah, I think that to answer the first part of your question, uh, I think everybody finds out that they enjoy teaching. We all take joy in uh, watching someone learn the things that we demonstrate to them and watch them be able to replicate it. Um, again, I think I, was, I had really, really strong mentors uh, that provided that model for me and made it, made it look like a really uh, beneficial career path, that there was a lot of joy derived uh, from the learning of others and, and watching other people master master those things that hopefully I've mastered myself. Um, and being, being program director is good. Um, it keeps me busy on a day-to-day -day basis. It really helps me keep my finger on the pulse uh, of the residency. And uh, I see myself kind of as the advocate for the residents uh, within the department. And that's a fun role for me uh, because I train in the department I work in. So uh, it's mm -hmm. got a real place uh, in my heart. So 
I like to try to do the best I can for the residency because I'm grateful for all the things it brought to me. Are there any nuances or things that you didn't realize, you know, would, um, would be things that would be like, oh, I have to deal with this, you know, being, being a director? Sure, you have to, uh, sometimes you have to be bad cop. You know, all the mm-hmm. rules that you were got tired of as a resident, you're now sort of responsible for enforcing them. And a lot of the things that you thought were silly when you're a resident, you turn around and you see the other side of them, you understand maybe why they're important or why they have to be done. So it's kind of seeing things from the different perspective, from the opposite perspective has been interesting. Now, I don't want to dive too deeply into it, but what is it, what are some of those, uh, some of those things that residents that may be like something silly that we're thinking like, ah, oh, I can't believe you have to do little, this. I mean, it's little stuff that we all forget about, you know, logging our duty hours, logging our uh, I mean, just, just mundane stuff like that. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, the human interaction part of it, it's, e- it's easy. Uh, it's the paperwork and the, the bookkeeping. That's the, yeah. uh, that's the stuff that's a little bit of a drag, but it's manageable. Yeah. And speaking of that, I think I had to log some of my cases at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do that good, too. Good to get in um, and then last question we have for you, is there uh, anything, you know, outside of medicine that you like to do or outside of orthopedics, uh, any interests that you have? Um, I don't have any one major hobby. I, I just try to get outdoors when I can. It could be as simple as going for a walk or hiking or riding a bike. Uh, I've got young kids getting outside and playing with them. Uh, it's just a nice, a nice change of pace from being in the, uh, the lighting of the hospital, the lighting in the operating room. So anything outdoors is pleasant. Yeah. Nice, a nice change in scenery. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Let's go ahead and, and hop into the topic for the day, which we'll talking a little bit about inner chokes, but say for example, one of your residents call you and they say, Hey, you know, we had a 72 year old female. She fell just from walking, fell down to her hip, had immediate hip pain and ability to walk. ED calls that they had an inner choke, canteric hip fracture. Uh, what are some of the important things in your mind that you want to know regarding at least the history of this patient and things that you want to know about a physical exam when you have you know, a resident or whoever may be speaking to you? Sure. Uh, you know, this is one of those rare cases where uh, the x-ray tells most of the story. You know, most, most proximal femur fractures are fairly easy to figure out. But I think there are several important points about the patient's history that you want to know. Um, these are typically fractures that are a marker how, how frail a patient is. You know, they are osteoporotic fractures. And so you want to know what is their, what is their functional status. It's almost like someone with a femoral neck fracture that you're trying to make the decision between a hemiarthroplasty and a total hip. You want to know how much does this person get around? Do they use a walker? Do they use a cane? Do they never even get out of bed? Or is this someone uh, who's out running, um, you know, senior, senior Ironman triathlons? Uh, you want to know <laughs> right. how healthy is the individual you're dealing with. I think that's a really important uh, thing to get a sense of. And then one other oddball thing is to sometimes understand if, uh, if people had antecedent pain, uh, if their thigh had been hurting them for weeks or months, that may tip you off to a possible pathologic fracture like a tumor. Um, right. those, are, those are kind of important things you want to figure out. And then relating to the overall health status, you want to know what, what chronic medical problems uh, or what acute medical problems might this person have. Because uh, for the most part, there's hardly anything that's going to keep you out of the operating room uh, to repair a hip fracture or replace a hip fracture. And it's generally something you want to do pretty quickly. So if they have some pressing medical problem, uh, an unstable arrhythmia, um, critical aortic stenosis, uh, newly diagnosed venous thromboembolism. Those are important things to know. Right. And yeah, I always think it's good to, uh, to know definitely like if they had pre like prodromic symptoms, if they had thigh pain beforehand, cause I know at least definitely when I was a first or a second, well, at least when I was a first year, I, that necessarily wasn't the first thing I was thinking to ask, you know, I was like, well, how did this happen? But I never didn't make it a conscious effort to investigate, uh, of the prodromic symptoms. So I'm definitely, glad that you brought that up and um and you know that's a marker for a possible you know pathological fracture or maybe a tumor or something going on so i always just had to have a high index of uh suspicion uh, for physical exams i know it's you know typically you know reading the books they say they may have a short or externally rotated limb i mean anything else that you particularly are that want to know about for a physical exam 
Those are, those are the big things. Uh, you know, in my limited experience, it's pretty uncommon for people to have a vascular problem or a neural, you know, a nerve problem from a fracture. Right. Um, sometimes it's interesting to know uh, what's the condition of their skin. Uh, again, in someone who's really immobile or infirm, do they have chronic decubitus ulcers on their hip or on their sacrum, things that could come into play in your surgical treatment. So even though it sometimes makes the patient a little uncomfortable, it's worthwhile inspecting the skin on their hip or even on their sacrum if you can, just to know if there's anything hiding there that pops up before you get to surgery. Yeah, it's uh, funny you say that. I have a, I know one of my my friends who was a, a resident at one point who actually almost got in trouble, not got in trouble, but it was a, a major learning point that nobody really looked at the skin around the hip and they had a, just like you said, like a large ulcer, a large decubitus ulcer kind of right almost where the incision would be. And that wasn't noticed prior to going into the OR. So um, just to harp on that, you definitely should definitely look at the skin for anybody listening to this, maybe a resident or not. It's a good habit to get into. And sometimes I've even seen it where like you, the, the scenario you painted where someone falls directly on their hip, people end up with a big bruise, big hematoma there. I've even seen people and they fall on concrete and they get a big scrape there. Uh, and again, it may, it may affect how you plan your surgical approach or something of that nature. So it's always, it's a good habit to get into to check. Right. And so what are, you know, let's move forward. What are some of the, you know, that's the basic imaging that every, every hip fracture we should have, you know, is there, you know, is it AP pelvis or what, what all should we definitely have on every hip fracture? Yeah, I think you, you really hit it here in your list of films. Uh, I think the, I've certainly seen instances in which only the injured hip is imaged, uh, which is great. It helps you diagnose things, but I think it's really valuable to see the contralateral hip uh, it helps you, again, plan out your surgical repair. Uh, you want to know at least what you think the injured side looked like before it became injured. Uh, and then, as you said here, you want to get the full femur. You want to get the knee for a couple of reasons. You want to see if there are any surprises lurking below, like a knee replacement um, or a previous you know, femur ORIF. Right. Uh, and also, it's something we'll probably see later. You want to try to assess the bow of the femur. Uh, if you're planning to treat someone with a long nail, uh, understanding the radius of curvature of their femur and how it relates to the cephalomedullary nail is important uh, to know if it's even feasible to put a long nail in or if you need to come up with an alternate strategy. So yeah. everything you have here is perfect. Yeah, I definitely want to um, touch base on that a little bit later when we get to it and, and talking about you know our preoperative planning, but definitely making sure we have films of the whole pelvis, the whole bone in question. It's like you say, you don't want any surprises when you go to the OR and you plan to put a long nail in that they had, you know, a distal femur plate there. And so then, you know, that kind of switches, uh, it gives you a, a pretty big curveball to go around. Um, now with these really displaced fractures, your institution, is it something that, that you get for, do you ever get traction films or, you, you know, do those help in any way or what, I guess kind of, can you discuss uh, on traction films? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> getting getting a traction film or sometimes even a CT scan can be useful when you're when you're really on the fence about trying to decide is this an intertrochanteric fracture or is it some sort of femoral neck fracture? Because you'll definitely see those basal cervical fractures where it really it's kind of blurs the line between is it an intracapsular or extracapsular fracture, and it's pretty critical to understand the anatomy of it to help you design your treatment. Um, so I'd say we're more apt to get CT scans uh, where I work, but I, I certainly know people that uh, like traction films. They're probably, they're more cost effective, um, but they're a little harder to set up sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And it can, can be uncomfortable for the patient sure. as, I, as I, I've definitely known in the past upon getting these films, you know, just having somebody hold traction. And then I know one of our, one of our things, he, sometimes he harps on saying that you can actually um, get an idea to see how it reduces, if it will reduce with this plane traction, or at least what, you know, you kind of have some sort of idea of what the fracture components uh, look like, you know, when you have, when a traction is applied to the, mm -hmm. to the leg. Um, do you ever get MRIs as far as if there's a questionable, you know, a question about a hip fracture and you can't necessarily see it on the x-rays? Yeah, I think, uh, again, CT can be useful and then MRI. If you're, uh, yeah. if you're suspicious of a fracture, but you can't see it on a plain x-ray, uh, then there's definitely an indication to get some sort of advanced imaging. And uh, there's several studies support that MRI is, it's more sensitive. It'll show you edema in a non-displaced fracture. So 
excuse me, evaluating for occult femoral neck fractures or occult intertrochanteric fractures. Yeah, if you can't make sure. a diagnosis by plain film, then an MRI can be incredibly useful. Right. And so when you go into the classifications for this, how do you classify these intertrochanteric uh, femur fractures? I, think I, I try to make classification systems as simple as possible. Uh, and I know there, there are multiple classification systems for these uh, intertroch fractures. Uh, and they all, you know, your, your picture uh, breaks it down perfectly. All of these classifications, you can simplify them by trying to identify the more stable fracture patterns and the more unstable fracture patterns. And there are certain qualities. You've got your list in here of the unstable ones that make them less stable. And I think the, the key is really identifying the unstable ones and realizing they're going to be a little bit harder to repair and that you're probably going to have to have, um, you're going to have to be a little more specific about your fixation methods. So all the things you have here, really that comminution of the posterior medial calcar uh, is a huge marker of instability, uh, reverse obliquity patterns, uh, the displaced greater trochanter, which can sometimes go along with a reverse obliquity pattern, and then uh, the subtroch extension. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you really hit all the high points. That classic teaching of when you're just trying to choose your fixation strategy uh, of the, if the lateral wall is not intact, you may need a certain fixation strategy. And then if the posterior medial calcar is not intact. Uh, right. You're with a less stable fracture. Yeah. And, and I, I've seen some, you know, I just watching some YouTube videos and just, you know, prepping for this, this podcast episode. There was an AO talk where they kind of talked about um, some characteristics or some fracture patterns to be able to at least just kind of recognize and know that this may be a more uh, unstable type of a, of a fracture. And, you know, these are for things like where you had the proximal fragment was going posteriorly or when, um, or when the proximal fragment is inside the medullary canal or, you know, you have three or four part fractures. Is, is this something that is this something that you go by as well or that you've noted that you definitely will likely need to open or reduce these fractures and they may not just be easy to get a close reduction? I have to say, I've, I've never seen this particular uh, classification pattern, but I like it. Ah. Uh, the Medana classification, it reminds me of the AO video of the tension band where the guy, uh, they <laughs> use the intact banana and then he bites into the banana. Yeah. Uh, I think it, you know, it's whatever classification system you use, it's again, trying to, to find that dividing line between the stable and the unstable patterns and the stable patterns share, you know, they have the intact calcar, the intact lateral wall, the unstable patterns are deficient in those areas right. or have more distal extension. And so, you know, you, you start to get a, a sense of it. Your eye becomes more attuned to looking, looking at what's stable and what's unstable. Okay. And can you kind of go through some of the pathoanatomy patho of these fractures? Because we always, you know, hear that, you know, a lot of these hip fractures have predictable um, fracture displacement based on the soft tissue attachments. Can you kind of just talk about, you know, some of the pathoanatomy behind these fractures, what's important and, and things that we should definitely know about? Sure. I think, uh, you know, anatomy is the key to everything. Anatomy, teach, it's a great teacher. Um, the more stable standard intertrochanteric fractures, uh, I tend to think of it as the femoral shaft uh, falls away from the proximal femur, it shortens and externally rotates. And so when you think about your reduction maneuver for a more simple intertroch fracture, it's traction to get the length back and then it's internal rotation of the femoral shaft to bring it up to meet the proximal fragment. So Again, the, the anatomy, that makes sense. And then in this uh, cartoon that you have, this is sort of a classic subtrochanteric fracture uh, where it exits more distal, distal to the lesser trochanter, so that the lesser trochanter is attached to the proximal fragment, giving it that classic flexion moment. And then the pull of the gluteus medius and minimus give it abduction and external rotation. So this is a really a common clinical scenario and then also a really common test question. They'll ask you about the deforming forces on it. It's, it's good to know those things, but then you also have to translate that into the ability to uh, overcome those forces in the operating room. And there's a lot of different strategies to do that in terms of how you position the patient, how you apply fixation, what reduction aids you use, things like that. Um, I think a, a constant thing to remember is where, what is happening with the greater, or I'm sorry, the lesser trochanter. Frequently we see the lesser trochanter fractured off. So you don't necessarily get that 
flexion deforming moment of the proximal fragment, but it's important to look when it's still attached because it can give you a really aggressive flexion deformity of the proximal piece. Okay. So just to recap for those listening, we're talking about our different, uh, our different fragments and our proximal femur fragment, it'll go to abduction because of our abductors and our gluteus medius uh, and minimus. And it'll go in to flexion because of our iliopsoas. Then you have our external rotators that'll externally rotate that proximal fragment. And then that distal fragment, we're going to adduction because um, you have the adductors um, working on working on that. Right. And typically, at least for our simple fractures, our technique for close reducing these is going to be traction and internal rotation to allow that distal fragment to kind of meet up with that proximal fragment. This is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. And then definitely pay attention to the lesser choke enter because if it's still intact, you can have even more, I guess, degrees or, or varying um, moments of flexion of that proximal piece. Now, um, what I always read about the door classification is this, what, what, what should we know about it? And I guess, can you kind of go through it and then tell me some of the things or the important things to know or how we should use this information? Sure. Like uh, <clears throat> door classification, it talks about the the morphology of the proximal femur. And as you get, as you go along in the classification, A, B, and C, uh, it's indicative of osteoporosis or osteopenia. You see a widened femoral uh, canal with thickened cortices. The bone is increasing its radius to try and maintain strength uh, as the cortices are thinning. So it's a really common pattern uh, in geriatric patients and certainly in osteoporotic patients uh, and I think it, it has implications. It, it may tell you how, how likely someone is to fracture. It may also tell you about uh, what you need to prepare for if you are uh, planning a surgical repair. Certainly the x-ray uh, more on the left-hand side and the door A classification. If you were to put an IM nail in there, you'd have to be prepared to ream quite a bit more, but you'd also know that you would get really great diaphyseal engagement of the nail. Uh, whereas go to the other side, the door C femur, uh, you wouldn't have to do as much reaming or any reaming, but you may also lose out on that diaphyseal fit uh, of the IM nail. So you may be relying more on your cephalomedullary screws or interlocking screws for stability. Ah, okay. It makes, makes perfect sense. And our door A is when we have our thick cortex and then door C is, with, I guess, that classic stovepipe um, yep. appearance that, that we definitely hear about. And, you know, just considerations for an A, you may have to ream a little bit more. Uh, versus a C, you may not have to ream as much, but that 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 lateral cortex, that proximal cortex, may be a little thin. So you're kind of depending a little. You may be depending a little bit more on your implant, and because you know that's definitely a little bit more osteopenic or osteoporotic bone. Yep. And so what I wanted to do is kind of dive into. Well, first off, our patients that were non-oping, I know it's, it's very rare that we non-op um, these interchokes, but are there any? Any cases where you've actually seen an inner choke be non-opt? Uh, I, I have. Um, I've seen ones that have showed up late. Uh, people that, it's always an odd scenario with someone with a chronic disease or a tumor or something like that who has sort of a slow motion pathological fracture. Uh, and so they, they are never struck by the acute fracture and immobility that goes along with it. Uh, and then I've seen patients, as you say here, it's, it's someone who is on hospice type care or a family that doesn't desire any invasive treatment for an elderly family member uh, that they're treated non-surgically. And uh, it's, usually, it's usually an end of life type discussion um, yeah. because it is such a morbid condition. Um, you take these very frail people uh, that don't tolerate immobility very well and you all of a sudden make them very, very immobile. It's usually, like I said, an end of life type deal. Right. Because, you know, at least what we're, you know, definitely taught is that, especially if you don't have surgery with these, the mortality used to go, you know, the mortality used to be very high for these patients that used to undergo these hip fractures. And I guess through the years and advances in treatment that being able to get that mortality rate to go down because you're able to uh, earlier ambulate, ambulate patients a lot earlier than they were before. And it's still, uh, it's still striking when you look at the statistics. Um, hip fracture, again, is a marker of frailty uh, for geriatric patients. And um, 
the in-hospital mortality after hip fracture, the three-month, six-month, and nine-month mortality, I'm sorry, 12-month mortality after hip fracture, they're very real numbers. Um, you know, in-hospital mortality has been as high as 8% in some series, and out-of-hospital one-year mortality has been as high as 20 or even 25% in some series. So these are, these are a big deal. Um, you know, even like you said, even with a really advanced, rapid, good treatment, um, it's a sign of how, how unwell someone is when they have one of these fractures frequently. Yeah. Yeah. So hip fractures are, um, they're, they're a big deal, just like you just said. And so time to fix most of them. And so what I like to do is go over generally, you know, kind of the, these different treatment options that we want to just talk about plating and some of the different plates that are, that are used to treat these fractures and then some of the nails, then we can kind of get into the nitty gritty, you know, afterwards, but just going through um, some of the plating, can you kind of just talk a little bit about some of the different um, plating um, options that we have that you can use for these types of fractures? Sure. Um, I know you've got a nice demonstration here. Uh, certainly blade plating uh, historically has been an option. I think it's a relatively uncommon primary treatment for intertroche fractures nowadays, uh, only because it is a really challenging technology to apply. Is very precise. Um, it requires a lot of templating. It requires knowing how to apply the implant. Uh, you have to drill a channel and then chisel a channel for the blade and seat it appropriately uh, and then apply it. It's an open procedure. It's got you know higher blood loss, things like that. And it's an implant that really only protects the proximal quarter of the femur. Uh, so it, it can be very, very effective at treating these fractures but it's probably fallen out of favor because it's technically quite difficult to apply. I think right. blade plates nowadays are more reserved for salvage uh, from some failed proximal femur fixation. Um, so historically significant in contemporary orthopedics is probably less important for the treatment of acute fractures. Right. Yeah. And, that, and that's, I mean, that's pretty much uh, what I know about it as well, but I know like when they used to fail, it used to the, the plate used to fail because these didn't allow for I guess that that controlled collapse because these are more like length stable um, constructs right. and so they would definitely fail when the implant would break and you could have you know high rate of non-unions or cut out because of the blade and, and then just again like you said it's a little bit more technically difficult um, mm -hmm. to use these these blade plates um, what about, what about looking at, you know, like the, the DHS, like the, the sliding hip screw, can you kind of talk about what this is and kind of how it works? Yeah. So the sliding hip screw, I mean, this is a revolution in the treatment of extracapsular hip fractures. Um, you know, whereas previously, uh, like there's even, uh, Charnley, you know, the original orthopedic master, he had a hip fracture that was treated with, um, a pin device uh, in England in the 19, gosh, I don't know, 40s or 50s. And it was the predecessor to sliding hip screw. So it's a great device. It's uh, relatively easy to apply. It's open, but not terribly maximally invasive, but it, it, it does exactly what you described. It allows that controlled collapse of the fracture. So ideally it's applied to stable fracture patterns that collapse back to a even more stable position uh, and because it allows that controlled collapse of the lag screw into the barrel, uh, it tolerates weight bearing. Nowadays, when compared to some more modern implants, a sliding hip screw is very cost effective and it provides what we think is pretty much equal outcomes in stable fracture patterns. Although there's a little bit of debate about that, about femoral neck shortening. Um, your diagram is great here. It shows a two hole sliding hip screw. Uh, most people agree that you don't need a sliding hip screw with a bunch of holes with a longer side plate. We think two holes is fine in these more stable patterns. Uh, you can find varying angles, as you said, to fit whatever the anatomy of the patient is. Uh, and then I like uh, your second to last point. It touches on that idea of the tip apex distance. Uh, so that was a landmark paper uh, by a guy named Mike Baumgartner who's still he still works and teaches at Yale, uh, where he studied a bunch of stable intertroch fractures treated with sliding hip screws. And the gist of what he came up with was well-placed lag screws that were deep and central in the femoral head uh, with that good tip apex distance of less than 25 millimeters hardly ever failed, whereas those with a very high tip apex distance failed more frequently. 
So even though some of the devices have changed over time, that's still one of the principles we live by in the treatment of these fractures uh, is that putting screws deep and central in the head on both AP and lateral views uh, is a good principle. And we think it maximizes our chances of a good result. Perfect. And that's in that apex disc that, that the tip apex distance, just like you said, that's measured on the AP and the lateral. And is that a combination of, uh, of both on AP and lateral? Or I guess, how do you actually calculate that? Yeah, it's exactly like you described. You, you go to the center of the femoral head and you measure the distance to the center of the lag screw. You do that on the AP view and on the lateral view. And the ideal number is 25 or less. Okay. And for this construct, the, the screw itself actually can slide within the barrel, correct? That's what allows the controlled collapse. Yep, exactly. The lag screw, you see the big threads on it, they bite into the femoral head. Uh, stabilizing the proximal fragment. And then exactly as you said, that barrel has been, it allows the lag screw to slide within it. And so it allows controlled compression of the fracture, which we think is, is a healthy thing for the fracture that uh, loading it uh, stimulates healing. Yeah, and, and I know how, um, to me, how extremely obvious that is right now, but I remember at least like halfway into, into uh, intern year, I was like, it's a lag screw. Like, I don't, I thought the lag screw stay in place. I didn't really understand the whole fact that it slid in and out of the barrel um, in order to help control that, um, in order to help with that control collapse. Yeah. So it's um, like a lot of things in orthopedics. Once you get your hand on the device and have a chance to mess around with it, it makes a lot more sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just moving, moving forward, I know these, this next one here over kind of the linear compression plates. Um, I don't, I don't know we, if we use them much here in the U.S., but um, can you kind of talk on, on these and, you know, do you, do you use linear compression uh, plates? And if you do, uh, what do you, you know, I guess your experience with it? I, you know, I have, I've only used these in a cadaver. Um, yeah. and I've never, never used one in a human, uh, a living human, and I haven't seen a whole lot of results from them. I think the idea is th these are supposed to try and provide an option for basal cervical or even femoral neck fractures uh, that give maybe a little more um, fixation and the ability to shorten um, a little more than just cannulated screws. Uh, but it's not something I have a lot of experience with. I think the, the jury is still out on these, uh, whether these have a huge role in the treatment of hip fractures. So I would right. say to be determined on these. I don't know. No, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, that's what I've read for the most part as well. And what about like these proximal femur plates, like, you know, the, these plates where there are, I mean, I guess most of them are supposed to be locking, but it, do you have any experience with that as far as treating, um, treating these proximal, um, you know, these intertroch fractures? Uh, you know, I've, I've not applied any of these intertroch fractures. Okay. Um, I've, I've seen a few, unfortunately, non-unions and failures of fixation with these. Um, I think for intertroch fractures, these are something that's kind of gone out of vogue. I think, yeah. uh, like you said, uh, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. They don't really allow um, compression. They don't really allow a lot of dynamic motion at the fracture site, uh, whether it's by the patient loading it or whether that's by you obtaining it in the operating room. Uh, so I think these have really gone out of style for the treatment of acute intertroch fractures. Um, now I will say I have seen these used uh, for just for compression plating of subtroch fractures. You know, if you have a if you're someone who enjoys plating uh, the proximal femur, yeah, um, I think these can be successful in that application. But I think for intertroch fractures, the the failure rate with some of these was pretty high higher than sliding hip screws and uh, higher than cephalo medullary nails. So for that reason, I think they've gone out of favor a little bit. Right. And yeah, I think you were saying just uh, for the failure rate, and that's because like, you know, these are, are, when they were used, is used for like, you know, typically more unstable fractures. So it's more stress on the plate itself. Um, and I, I, instead of, you know, I think some people use, them, use it as a neutralization plate, but some people just use it just as a plate itself. Yeah. Uh, which then, you know, I guess leads to that fatigue failure of these plates, which is... Yeah, you're, you're asking a lot of a, a plate on the lateral side of the femur uh, in the proximal third of the femur where it sees tremendous bending stresses um, and tends towards varus displacement. So I, know, I, haven't, I haven't used a lot of these. I haven't seen a lot of these, but unfortunately results I have seen have not been great. You know, if, if I was ever considering one of these lock plates, it's probably for a fracture that I should just be putting a cephalomedullary nail in. 
And I think that's like a perfect segue <laughs> into into talking about uh, Safella medullary nails. And, and I think this is at least what I've seen. Um, we use this definitely a lot here in the U.S. as far as treating these um, these uh, these types of fractures or these proximal femur fractures, these hip fractures. And can you kind of talk about the, I guess, the different classes of cephalomedullary nails and how they work? Sure. I think the, the first two, the first distinction to understand is whether you're using one of these nails to treat a geriatric uh, intratroch or subtroch fracture, or whether it's a young person high energy fracture. Okay. Uh, because there's sort of two different kinds of nails that are designed for those applications. So the, the Synthes TFN, the Stryker Gamma nail, the Smith & Nephew um, Intertan, uh, Biomets Affixus nails, those are just like the picture you're showing here. They're nails that have a really, really big proximal diameter. They have a really big lag screw, and they're meant to be almost like bone substituting devices in very osteoporotic geriatric proximal femurs. And then on your previous slide, you had one line about re reconstruction nails. So there you go, smaller proximal diameter with mul multiple lag screws. Those are more for high energy intertroch or subtroch fractures in young people that have good bone quality where you don't need as big of a nail, you don't need as big of screws uh, because the bone quality is gonna be really good to accept those devices. So I, I try to think of cephalomedullary nails and by treating a geriatric uh, hip fracture or am I treating a young person high energy proximal femur fracture? So that's the first distinction. Okay. Um, and since we're focusing on the intertrope fractures, I would say you have these this nice delineation uh, of the impaction type, the compression type. Uh, so your your next slide shows I think the synthes TFN, uh, where you see it's it's not really a screw, it's that blade. Yeah. Uh, and the idea behind that is rather than drilling out bone for a screw, rather than removing bone. You use a device like this, where as you advance that blade, it spins, it compacts or impacts the bone around it. So the idea is maybe that you're preserving bone uh, rather than taking bone away. Okay. So it, you know, like any of these other nails, I think using it for the right application, uh, obtaining a good reduction of the fracture and putting your lag screw uh, in a deep and central position, aiming for that good tip apex distance. Those are the same techniques you want to apply, uh, you know, really for any of those fractures and any of these nails. Yeah, and I was reading and I know it was saying that um, for these, you use it in more osteoporotic bone because if you have a young patient with really good bone and you try to, you know, you're, you're hammering this down that it may actually distract at that fracture side, unless you hold it, you know, reduced with a, right. you know, a, a rubber clamp or whatever reduction uh, tool that you use. Yeah. And I think that that gets exactly back to the point of what kind of fracture are you trying to treat? Um, if you got someone with really, really good non-osteoporotic bone, maybe going to a smaller diameter reconstruction nail would be better because uh, you're going to have good bone quality. In that case, drilling out a path for a screw is safe because the screw is going to have really good purchase. But exactly like you say here, an osteoporotic bone, maybe impacting or compacting the bone around the blade is advantageous. And when we talk about failure and we talk about medial penetration of the blade, we're we just talking about the blade going through the femoral head when that does happen. It's a, this is a good point. So when, when we do see failed fixation of intertroch fractures, uh, I mean, sometimes we see the lag screw uh, back out or do something funny, okay. but more often, more often than not, it's the bone failing around the nail. Um, so what, what you see is whether it's because the bone is so poor, or whether you didn't have a good reduction, you didn't have your lag screw or blade in a good tip apex distance. What you see is the bone shears around the rod or the screw, and then eventually it just falls off of it and displaces. Um, so occasionally you get the nail breaking like sometimes we've seen these nails break at the lag screw hole in the proximal part of the nail but that's usually due to a technical error when the surgeon inserts it uh, that usually means you were drilling the nail or doing something you scored the nail mm. uh, put a weak point in it but usually it's you know it's not the it's not the rod and the screw that fail it's usually the bone that fails around it and do you, I guess, how do you choose between, you know, using the blade with, you know, the impaction versus using a lag screw? Um, I think uh, oftentimes that decision is either driven by how you were trained. You become okay. more comfortable with one certain type of device. Um, the other part of it, you may be 
the hospital system you work in may have uh, contracts with certain vendors. And sometimes oh. that can dictate uh, your options available to you. You may not have five different cephalomedullary nails available to you. Your hospital may say, uh, you know, you need to use striker gamma because we're a striker hospital. Um, I think mm. the, the different nails have different, they may have different selling points. The TFN has the, we don't take bone away, we impact it. Intertan has the, we have active compression of the fracture. Um, gamma probably has some selling point as well. Uh, but I think they're all pretty much equivalent if they're applied sensibly. So the limitations may be the comfort level of the surgeon and the hospital or healthcare system they work in. Right. And since we just mentioned the intertan class, um, this, the intertan, their method, it's pretty almost almost the same. Like, you know, they have a, they have a, um, you know, a, a larger diameter, you know, proximal portion of the nail, but they get their compression through the screws interdigitating. That's how you get compression through the fracture side, correct? Right. It's an, it was an, it's an answer to a problem that was created by an older type of nail. I know you had a picture of a reconstruction nail with two independent lag screws. So this idea of people, this is a, you can look at the reduction of the fracture, you can critique or whatever you want. Um, this is a problem of fracture instability. And it means the femoral head and proximal segment are, are wobbling around the nail. Uh, this is probably a fracture that should have been repaired with a long nail. Uh, so this is a short nail. Right. But what happens with these independent lag screws, as the femoral head rocks back and forth, it advances one screw and the other one backs out. And this people, there's papers on this, it's called the Z effect. Yeah. Um, and that was a critique of this type of nail and this type of fracture pattern. And so Smith and Nephew said, well, we don't want our two screw device to be subject to that Z effect. So they designed Intertan, which has these interdigitated or connected screws, uh, which also have the ability to gain, uh, excuse me, to obtain active compression uh, at an intertroch fracture. So those are some of the unique things that they think they bring to the table. Uh, okay. So for the Intertan, well, so for the, the recon class, you know, typically that is, you have your interlocking screws, two interlocking screws that go approximately into the femoral head, right. which, you know, can kind of help, you know, control some rotation. And those, I think originally were described for, you know, like complex subtroke and pathological mm -hmm. fractures, just to give yep. you a little bit more stability. But like you just said, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say this, I think you can, you can pretty clearly see that the Z effect is due to a technical error by the surgeon. I think the, the reduction is okay. It's probably in varus alignment a little bit, but again, the, the choice of a short nail for a subtroke fracture like this, it's one of those points you say, this is a very unstable fracture. This probably merits a long locked cephalomedullary nail or a long locked recon nail. So the Z effect can happen with these independent lag screws, but it's usually a result of some sort of technical error or malreduction on the part of the surgeon. Perfect. Got it. So say, you know, we've got our fracture, you know, we figured out what we're going to use, you know, what type of implant we're going to use. Now, in your head, what all goes into pre-op planning? What are you thinking of, you know, when you're prepping for the case? What are some of the things that you may look for and, and make note in your head? Yeah, I think uh, you've got some nice, nice learning points here. I think looking at the, the anatomy of the proximal femur, you say, is this a very valgus or a very varus proximal femur? Or is it where most people live somewhere in the middle? Um, most, most nails or most devices give you a range. Um, you know, I certainly sliding hip screws have a wide range of neck shaft angles available. A lot of the other nails may give you a 125 or 130 degree option. So I think understanding the morphology of the proximal femur is important. In addition to understanding is the fracture stable or unstable, which may help you choose between a sliding hip screw or a short nail, or if it's very unstable, you may say, I need a long lock nail. Uh, and then also looking, like you said, at the radius of curvature of the bone. If this is a very diminutive person, uh, especially women of Latin or Asian heritage, they have a very, they have very uh, highly curved femur uh, that may not match up with the radius of curvature of the nails you have available. And so understanding how long of a nail you can put in uh, may be useful. So those are, those are all things I look at uh, on the x-ray. Uh, and then I think looking at the, like we said, getting a, a view of the pelvis and looking at the contralateral femur, the contralateral hip can give you a really good idea of what their normal alignment hopefully is. 
Right. And so that for that radius of curvature, because, you know, if there's a miss, uh, you know, read about like if there's a mismatch, you can get, you know, anterior cortical perforation if you're, yeah. if your um, nail curvature does not match up with the curvature of the femur. And I think there's some special nails out there made that have like a, a increased curvature just digitally um, on the nail itself. I, I don't know what nails they are, but I think uh, there's some that exist. I've, I've heard, but I honestly don't know who they are. It's a good, it's a good question. I know that there are some more modern nails that um, they actually have variable curvature depending on how long the nail is. So if you're treating a six foot tall person, uh, the nail is going to be longer, presumably. So it doesn't have a very aggressive curve. But if you're treating someone who's four foot 11, who's presumably going to have a short femur and have a, a really curved femur, the nail, their shorter nails in their uh, arsenal actually have a greater curve to them. So I think manufacturers are aware of the problems that surgeons run into with this from time to time. Okay, cool. And so just moving forward, um, and so, you know, say so we we pre-op plan, now we're going to the OR. Um, how do you do the, do you typically do this on a fracture table? Do you do it, you know, on a, on a, on a flat Jackson with a bump? Uh, how do you typically set these up? Or does it depend on the fracture pattern? I, I am very much a favor of uh, fracture tables. I think um, I, I try to keep in mind and I try to impart in all the residents uh, a strategy. If you had to do this by yourself, if you didn't have anyone helping you, how would you do it? So we're big believers in fracture tables uh, where I train and where I work. Uh, myself and one of the other attendings, we, we are big believers actually in positioning people lateral on a fracture table. Okay. Uh, it takes a little more work, but I think it pays dividends in some ways. Uh, our third trauma partner likes to set people up supine. It's just his preference. Uh, I like to position people lateral uh, mainly because uh, it makes the starting point. I think it makes it a lot easier. Uh, we're in Texas where we have, I think it's two or three of the uh, most obese cities in America. Uh, mm. So we have some sizable patients. Uh, and oh, I think yeah. putting, putting them in lateral position really helps to get their uh, abdomen and thorax out of the way. Uh, it brings their hip uh, to the top of the surgical field and makes access to the trochanter much easier. And then I also think it helps in certain fracture patterns, maybe those with subtrochanteric extension um, or those with a, a real flexion deformity of the proximal segment. Um, it definitely takes longer to set up. It takes uh, a little getting used to uh, looking at the x-ray, setting the patient up correctly so that the opposite hip is not overlapped in your fluoro field. And then I think it actually makes distal interlocking a little bit tougher, uh, but it's certainly doable. Uh, but yeah. I think it underscores find the position that works for you, find your reduction method that works for you, uh, whether it's positioning them on a flat table, whether it's using a traction table. And then I think what you're showing here is you want to be able to get, get x-rays uh, that show you the anatomy you need to see. Right. Yeah. And that's the next thing I was actually, I've actually never seen a, uh, one of these done laterally. So that'd be interesting to see, but uh, nonetheless, yeah. But one of the things that we harped on, or at least I think I was on a, um, on some, some zoom, some OTA zoom, and they were talking about, you know, nailing and, you know, proximal femur nailing and making sure that you have good images is, you know, cause if you get an AP, for example, and it's too flex versus too extended, you know, if it's too, um, uh, extended, you know, the next to the greater choke cancer may look a little bit more shallower versus if it's, you know, too flexed, it may look, um, a little bit more deep and just making sure that you have a good AP to start to x-ray off with, you know, making sure you have your 10 to 20 degrees of internal rotation to offset that antiversion. Um, for you looking at a lateral, what are, what are some pearls that you have as far as getting a good lateral and, and, and what do you look at when you're saying, okay, that's a good lateral of the hook? Sure. I think, um, really the, it's a, it's a tough thing to do and it just takes time and repetition to get better at it. I think one of the hardest things is distinguishing what is the shadow of the greater trochanter and what is the shadow of the femoral neck. And you've got them really nicely outlined here. And that's something that I try, um, I try to really go over with the residents when we're fixing these fractures. So I try to take the time. Uh, oftentimes you can see the alignment of the fracture, the cortical alignment best at the shadow of the trochanter 
Uh, and I find it's especially in the anterior part of the trochanter that you can really see. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so the, the greater trochanter is a really, really big structure. It's really wide anterior to posterior. Uh, it's much wider than the femoral neck. And so sometimes you tend to ignore the femoral neck uh, when looking at alignment. So you wanna see, have you restored continuity of the trochanter anterior and posterior? And then I also find that most people, uh, the anterior portion of the femoral neck is pretty much in line with the anterior cortex of the femur and the posterior uh, cortex of the femoral neck is in line with the posterior cortex of the femoral shaft. So I find that those are other cues for alignment to show that we've restored the, the hip to what is hopefully its, its neutral anatomy. Yeah, I think that's um, definitely good to, to take part in and definitely note when you're getting your, your two laterals. And I remember a rookie mistake is when we started off like getting a lateral, just getting a straight lateral and you're actually getting a lateral of the femur and not right. of the femoral neck itself. Right. So, you know, making sure you have, you may need to change your beam to make sure you're getting a lateral of the femoral neck, which may be in whatever degrees of aneversion that that patient may have. Exactly. And I think the, the ability to see the femoral head on a lateral x-ray is really crucial because that'll help you when you're, when you're placing your screw or your uh, blade to really make sure your tip apex distance is as good as you want it to be. Okay. And as far as a closed reduction, I know you, we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but just to you know, just for repetition is key. Um, how do you, you know, any other tips that you have as far as getting a, a closed reduction of what you think may be a stable, you know, intertrochanteric femur fracture? Yeah, I think the, the workhorse is really what you described here. It's pulling traction, internally rotating, and then really taking the time to look at the x-ray. Uh, so, you know, one thing, one thing I always do is uh, when we set the patient up on the table, we obtain the closed reduction and we lock it in on the table before we drape the hip, before we prep or anything, I always bring x-ray in. I assess the quality of our reduction on AP and lateral x-rays uh, because I wanna make sure I understand the fracture and I wanna make sure I have it reduced as well as possible. So things I look at, uh, you know, I look at the fluoro shot and then I look at the, the AP of the pelvis. Have I matched or close to match the opposite hip? Have I restored the normal relationship of the greater trochanter and the femoral head? Meaning, have I not left the patient in too much varus or valgus? Uh, assessing all those things. And if I'm, if I'm not happy with the reduction, that's when I take the time to fine tune it. I say, okay, maybe we need a little more traction, a little less traction. Let me add a little internal rotation, a little external rotation. And sometimes seeing how fine maneuvers impact how your x-ray looks is very valuable. So I think uh, time spent on obtaining and looking at the closed reduction is really, really valuable uh, because it's not something you want to do once you're all prepped in and the surgeons are all scrubbed in and all of a sudden you're asking an inexperienced tech or an inexperienced <laughs> rep to work your fracture table for you uh, because they may not understand how the various uh, levers and knobs impact your reduction. So I think uh, doing as much of that as you can up front, it pays dividends during the surgery. Right. And so again, just to repeat, some of the things that you said you look at is you look at the level of the greater choke to make sure you haven't, you know, put them in too much varus or valgus. You get an AP of the hip to make sure you, you've matched or restored, uh, restored that, that anatomy of the femoral neck. Now, do you, do you, do you also like look at the cortical reads on the, on the inferior neck when you're doing it? Like you just, so you just pretty much take whatever, all the clues you can get for the most part. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's, uh, there's no one thing that's going to tell you the whole story. It's looking at it as a, as a sum total of the reduction. Uh, I think looking at the, the troke and head relationship is valuable. Certainly looking at the calcar, do you have offset or have you lined it up nicely? Have you restored that Gothic arch of the inferior femoral neck? You know, it's almost like a looking at a shoulder or the Shenton's line. Right. Have you restored that nice contour? Have you made it look like the other side? So taking all those factors into account to see if you have an adequate reduction. Okay. And so say, for example, you know, you've tried a closed reduction, unable to get a closed reduction, or say this is a, you know, a younger patient, high energy mechanism, and you, you, you know beforehand that you may have to open or reduce it. It may be three, four parts, or you know, have subtrochanteric extension. Do you have any tips as far as um, open reducing and, and making sure that everything lines up? Any technical tips that you have uh, sure. that you've noted in your practice or through your years? Yeah, one thing I, I think that is really valuable. So in these fractures, we've almost certainly made up our mind. We're going to put in cephalomedullary screws. 
which require a lateral incision, right? You know, and when you line up the guide and it's time to put the screws into the head, you have to make an incision for that. So in most cases, if I'm having trouble with the reduction, I'll make that incision right off the bat. And to me, that's a free incision that I can use to insert devices to manipulate the fracture. So you see here inserting a K wire into the fracture to try and correct a little step off. Um, a common thing I'll see is, you know, you'll, when you have the fracture lined up and you're going to ream it, it will gap the fracture open. Uh, I will use that incision to sometimes insert a bone hook uh, and try and hook the inferior femoral neck uh, to compress the fracture as we're reaming. Uh, you can put a hook around the femoral neck. You can apply a spiked pusher to the lateral cortex of the femoral shaft, again, to apply compression. Um, so I try to take that incision uh, and use it to my advantage. Um, I've even, I found it's pretty hard to put a Weber clamp in uh, through that incision just because the size of the person's thigh fights you a little bit. Uh, but you can insert all sorts of useful devices through that, uh, collinear clamps, bone hooks, spike pushers. Uh, if you have it reduced, you can run K wires across the fracture to stabilize it provisionally before reaming. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff you can do. And, and again, so you've noticed that typically when you're doing these, you try to uh, put maybe one clamp on the inferior neck of the proximal fragment and then another clamp, uh, I guess, on the, on the posterior shaft of the distal fragment. Is that typically the vector that, you're, that you use that you're able to get a reduction? Yeah, or even it just uh, you're correct about um, on the inferior portion of the, the neck or the calcar. And then uh, if you're trying a collinear clamp or a Weber clamp, putting the other tine on the lateral cortex of the femur, just something to compress that fracture together into a good position. Okay. And have you, have you ever used some of, because, you know, reading, I know there's multiple, multiple techniques you can use to um, help assist in your reductions. Do you ever use it when you put like a shans pin into the shaft to try to get your, um, to try to assist with your reduction? Have you ever used that before? Sure, I've, I've found that useful in, in highly displaced subtroke fractures. Okay. That's where I think putting a chance pin in both fragments can be very useful. That way you have control over both of them. You can control varus and valgus, you can control uh, rotation of the fracture. I find that, that to be very useful. Uh, or sometimes just reaching in and grabbing both fragments with clamps uh, and holding them aligned uh, as the nailing goes on. Um, I think you gotta be willing to use all the tools available to you. Right. And it's just, you know, just some, you know, fracture one-on-one, like, you know, if you see that you have a coronal fragment, fragment, you know, that your clamps are maybe in the AP position versus, you know, if it's a sagittal plane, it may be right. going, you know, laterally, pretty much whatever the, the fragment needs. Yep. Exactly. And are you, and do you, I've read a little bit about, you know, the use of like a four hole semi-tubular plate to help get provisional fixation in, in difficult or highly Chimeter to displace fractures. In your experience, have you ever used that or is that a technique that you've seen done before? I think that's a really cool x-ray. I think that's a crazy technique. <laughs> I, I saw the paper uh, about that um, from really smart people put that together. I think that uh, more open, open approaches, um, things like this are very useful if you're doing revision, uh, fracture fixation work. Uh, where things are highly displaced and deformed and partially healed. But I think for primary fracture treatment, things like this are pretty uncommon nowadays. Okay. And do you ever, is there ever a case where you realize that you, you had to do like an anterior approach to the hip in order to get a reduction? Is that, you know, is that something that you've had to do for any type of intertrochs before? Uh, I would say I haven't really had to open for extracapsular fractures like okay. intertrochs. Uh, I've certainly opened for subtrochs, long spiral subtrochs, opened and clamped or cabled. I've opened for more proximal fractures like basal cervical or femoral neck fractures uh, for open reductions where you can't get an acceptable close reduction. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm a big believer for these extracapsular extra fractures. You can, you can generally get them well reduced. Um, and get good fixation in them without massive open procedures for the most part. Perfect. And I think, you, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier when we were talking about the DHS screws uh, or DHS plates that you, you know, you, those allow weight bearing, but typically for most of your inner chokes afterwards, you allow, do you typically allow them to weight bear? Yeah, exactly. You definitely do because this is a, again, we're getting back to, these are mostly geriatric patients. Mobility is key for them. 
you got to have, you got to have confidence in your fixation. You got to let these folks walk on them as much as possible. You know, I'm, I'm almost 40 and I wonder if I could even get around with crutches or a walker if I had to. Um, yeah. Certainly someone that's 70 or 80, they're not going to do so well trying to stay off of their legs. So you just got to let them go for it. So that's the idea behind stable, you know, good reduction, stable fixation is to let them bear weight on it. Very true. And I think this was a great talk on, on inner chokes and, and we have a, a special, we have something extra that, that Dr. Sanders is so, um, so nicely provided with us. For those listening, definitely go and check out the YouTube um, channel. Dr. Sanders has brought some cases that we can kind of just run through here shortly. And uh, if you can, Dr. Sanders, if you can kind of go walk us through these cases, kind of what your thought process was um, beforehand or going into the case and then kind of what you, what you did to, uh, to obtain a reduction and hold it. Sure. So the, this case, this is a, a more geriatric case. This is someone in their 70s, low energy fall, uh, inner trope fracture. And so this is one, it's, it's sort of on the border of stability. Um, you know, it's a pretty simple uh, standard obliquity IT fracture, but the lesser trochanter is fractured off, that poster medial calcar is fractured off. Yeah. And so this is one where you, you get into a little bit of a debate. Would this be adequately treated with a sliding hip screw? There's a lot of people that say, yeah, it probably would be. Uh, would this be adequately treated with a short uh, cephalomedullary nail? I think most people agree that this would be fine for a short cephalomedullary nail. Um, my tendency is to use long nails for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is it's a training institution. I think putting in long nails and practicing freehand interlocking was really valuable for the residents. I know it was for me when I was a resident. Right. If they want to put in short nails when they're out in practice, more power to them. I'm a, I was trained on intertan, and so I've become a, a little bit of a believer in intertan. Um, I, you may see, I, maybe I violated one of the uh, principles of hip fracture treatment here. You could argue that the lag screws are a little bit low on the AP view. Okay. Uh, that's where I tend to put them for these fractures, because that's usually where these folks have the most dense bone yeah. uh, is along that inferior femoral neck. Yeah, maybe maybe we're just a just a hair off, um, but not, not too bad. We got the fracture in nice alignment. It's not in varus or anything. And then I think on that middle x-ray, the interesting thing to look at is, so this is, a, this is someone who's in the lateral position on a fracture table. The x-ray, there's a little more going on. There's a little more that gets in the way of the x-ray, but the anterior femoral neck really lines up with the anterior cortex of the femur the posterior femoral neck really lines up with the posterior cortex of the femur. And then you see the greater trochanter has a really, really broad profile. It really flares out both anteriorly and posteriorly. So it's useful to be able to look at that on an x-ray. So I think we got a nice reduction on the lateral view. We've got a, lot, a long locked nail. That's good. Yeah, that looks good. Went on I like it. Yep. Went on a union. I like it. That's what we all, yep. yeah, perfect for the post-ops. Exactly. Yeah, looks pretty good. All right, what do we have? Uh, this one definitely looks a little a little unstable. Just yeah, so this is this is a little different little different flavor. This is a lady in her twenties who's in a high energy car accident, and just as you hit on it, it's a really unstable fracture pattern. Uh, it's kind of subtroke pattern. The um, the proximal femur is split into really three fragments. There's the head and neck fragment. It's got some trochanter on it. It's got a big piece of the troke busted off laterally and posteriorly, and the inferior. I'm sorry, the uh, Lesser troke is off, and then the shaft, you know, the proximal segment's really displaced with respect to the shaft. So this is kind of your classic subtroke, high energy subtroke. It's got abduction, external rotation, and flexion. And so yeah. it's a hard, hard fracture to reduce. Uh, but the one benefit you have here, because she's young and healthy, she's gonna have really good bone quality. So this is a scenario where I say we don't need a geriatric hip nail. We need something that's probably more like that uh, trauma reconstruction nail. Right. And, and were you thinking before, I mean, you're probably not going to be able to get close reduction on this. So you're thinking beforehand that you just went ahead and um, that same, you know, incision that you would have used to put those two screws in, you just went ahead and make an incision there and, and reduce this. So, yeah, I, I think I, I always, I always hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So try a close reduction, move on to sort of percutaneous manipulation, but prepare for open, open measures if you need. This is one, it went mostly by sort of percutaneous manipulation. Uh, so you see okay. you know, the fracture doesn't look perfect. The trochanteric fragment is displaced a little bit still, but we realigned that medial calcar pretty well. Uh, on the lateral view, same deal, the 
the anterior neck is lined up with the anterior shaft. The posterior neck is lined up with the posterior shaft. The trochanteric fragment is blown out posteriorly. Uh, we got two good screws deep and central in the femoral head. And then we double locked it distally. So again, we got a functional reduction. We got length rotation alignment and good fixation. Did you do uh, percutaneous screws laterally or uh, not screw? I'm sorry, percutaneously uh, uh, reduce this lateral? Did you have some anterior, you know, stab wounds that you had to use in order to bring some of these pieces it, around? Did it pretty much all laterally, but uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not hesitant to make other adjunct incisions where we need to. Um, I think the proximal femur is highly tolerant of that. So wherever you need to place fixation, you know, you just want to know where the important stuff is. You don't want to want to wander too far behind the greater trochanter and you don't want to wander too far medially. Like it looks good. Yeah, these, these um, post-ops look pretty good too. Yeah, same Very deal. Good. Went on to heal. Mm -hmm. um, and then what do we have in this last case here? Yeah, so another, another geriatric fractures, guys in his 60s fall from standing. I think this one's interesting for a couple of reasons. If you look at his other hip, he doesn't exactly have normal hip morphology. He's got a fairly varus alignment. He's got sort of a cam morphology if you're a hip preservation uh, fan. Yeah. Uh, and then his fractured side, this is one that's, it's a little hard to tell what's going on. You look at it and you say, boy, it doesn't look like the normal uh, standard obliquity intertroche. And this is, this is kind of common. This is a, it's really a reverse obliquity type intertroche. Okay. Uh, it starts off lower in the lateral cortex uh, and exits higher on the medial cortex. So this is one, you know, it's, it's less stable. It's not amenable to a sliding hip screw, probably not amenable to a short nail because it extends down into the diaphysis a little ways. So this is one, the, the reduction may be a little bit difficult, but you probably ought to use a long locked cephalomedullary nail for the repair of this one. Now, did you get a CT or anything uh, before this case or you just plain x-ray films? Yeah, just, just plain x-rays. You know, I, I, okay. at this point, I feel reasonably comfortable with what I'm looking at. And I know ultimately I'm going to fix it with a long locked nail. So I've already made up my mind about the fixation going into it. Uh, it's the reduction maneuvers that may vary. So same okay. thing, looking at all those, those critical elements, the, the center of the femoral head, is it about the same height as the greater trochanter? So it doesn't look like we've left them in varus that medial cortex seems to be well aligned. Uh, on the lateral view, the, the cortices of the neck are aligned with the cortices of the shaft. Again, I violated the tip apex distance rule. I probably put the screw a little bit low, uh, but this is more of a reverse obliquity. It's not your standard IT fracture. So this, this one screw had a lot of purchase in the proximal fragment. Very good. Yeah, I mean, that looks good. You know, these are all, you know, great cases. I, I definitely appreciate you um, coming on and, and speaking on this podcast. Um, I think this it was a great, um, great talk. We definitely went over, you know, a bunch of different treatment options for intertrochs. Uh, is there anything else, do you, you know, that you think a, a listener should get, you know, regarding these intertrochanteric femur fractures before we wrap up here? Um, no, I think it's a, it's a good topic to cover because it's something we're all going to treat. At some point in our career, it doesn't matter what type of uh, practice environment we're in. I think it's a, it's a good thing to become proficient at these because these are some of the most sensitive patients we take care of. Uh, someone who's elderly and infirm is not going to do very well if you don't if you don't give them a good reduction and sensible fixation. They're going to have pain. They may go on to non-union. They may never mobilize out of bed, and that has real implications for these. So I think this is something we should all pay attention to and hopefully get pretty good at. Well, that's great. Dr. Sanders, again, I think this is a great episode. I hope the people listening to this learned a lot. Um, we always, at the end of our shows, we always, you know, put away, whether it's social media or email or anything, if you, if you want to share it, that you want our guests to be able to reach you out or follow you or anything, you know, feel free if you want, um, you know, share your uh, email address or your social media, if you want people to follow you there, and if anything you have. Sure, we're at UT Southwestern Ortho on Instagram. Feel free to follow us, learn a little bit about the residency program. Perfect. Um, well, thank you all again for listening. I hope you all um, enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and we will see you again next week.